Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Creekside. And we have been in a series on the book of Thessalonians. But before we just dive into scripture, I want us to take a second to talk about a lifestyle that has become very popular over the last couple of years. But as I've done my research, I found out it's actually been around for like ever. We just made it popular recently. Probably because we have things like Netflix that do documentaries on these things. So if you have Netflix and you've seen these, phenomenal. If you haven't seen them, I highly recommend it. This first one right here on your guys's left uh, was the first documentary to come out and it was about what do we have that we deem as important and then the second documentary on your guys's right came out and it was about less is now meaning why do we have so much stuff and less is actually better that's more important is to have less and I love this. Uh, I love minimalism. And in a simple definition of minimalism, it is a style slash technique that is characterized by extreme spareness and simplicity. It is a methodology of getting rid of excess and keeping only what is essential. It is a fascinating lifestyle and choice to kind of go against materialism and this American dream of bigger, better, best. You need the best iPhone. You have to come here because this is the best thing you'll ever experience. Like, get the best thing. Get the best. Get the best. But what this is saying is that you might already have the best thing. And instead, what you need to do is declutter. You need to get rid of some things. And I personally am not a full-blown minimalist, although if you look at my outfit and then you look at uh, that guy right there, Decently similar, although he has luscious long hair and mine is this. But anyway, I love minimalism because it is so simple. And I love the questions that they ask as they head into a store to buy things or even as they go, man, we really need to declutter this room. They ask questions like, do I really need this? How does this item make me feel? When's the last time I used this? Is keeping this causing me unnecessary stress? Am I filling a void with this item? And to me, I love the question of, do I really need this or is it just taking up space? And minimalism to me is about creating an environment where you don't have to feel stressed by what you are seeing. And little did I know, as I, I've done some research on this, as I've watched these documentaries, uh, there's a book called uh, Longing for Less that dives into the art, architecture, and design of minimalism. Phenomenal book. But I didn't know there was an architecture devoted to minimalism. <laughs> right? And these architecture um, people, uh, minimalists, seek to build something that cultivates a feeling. They want a place to feel peaceful. They want it to feel joyful. In its simple nature, a minimalist architecture and design want the person that is experiencing it to feel at peace. It is an environment where all the items that are in a place have a purpose. Every single thing in a room has a purpose because it makes that person 
feel something. Minimalism architecture starts with the end in mind. How is this room going to make somebody feel? How does this room make me feel? They seek to understand the space. Okay, I have this much room. Should I put something that's going to take up three-fourths of the room? Or should I do something smaller? They sit back and do this mind game where they try to figure out what it will look like before they do anything. And it creates places like this. Philip Johnson's glass house, which was made in the late 1940s. As you can see, it is beautiful. I mean, look at the trees behind it, and yet such an, like, elegant, just piece of work right there. So intentional. Everything that was made in this place was intentional. Down to the fireplace and the chairs picked, everything conveys this sense of peace. Do you see how much space is available in there? It's insane, but they created this space to be a place of escape, to be a place of rest. See, when a minimalist sees an empty room, they don't seek to fill it right away. They sit in the room, they look at the room, and they go, I must wait and do a mental game to begin to develop a plan of where to put things to convey a feeling. And after they go through this mental game, that is when they go and buy the items. And I love it. Minimalism design starts with the end in mind, and then they make it a reality. And I wonder, as apprentices of Jesus, if we started with the end in mind, what type of culture and atmosphere would we be creating? When people look at us and when we walk into a room, are we creating an atmosphere where people can come to see Jesus? Because if we live with the end in mind, we should remember, wow, things are going to end and there's a good place to go and a place that probably people don't want to go. Are we living so people can see Jesus? And remember last week, Mark painted a beautiful picture of how we should be ready for the Lord's return and the hope that comes with Jesus returning. And so with this in mind, I believe it's important to ask the question, are we living in light of the end? And in the verses we're going to look at today, Paul encourages the Thessalonians and us to live in such a way. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Once again, that's 1 Thessalonians 5.12. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. PowerPoint. It says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. God, as we dive into these verses, I pray that you would use this sermon to help us create an atmosphere where people can see heaven. I pray that this sermon would launch us on a path to become more like Jesus. 
guide us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul is very clever in his writing, and he puts this here for a reason. As you know, we looked at the verses right before this last week. Why would Paul do this? Why would he talk about the end times and then go, oh yeah, by the way, let's throw these verses in here. Unless he wanted the Thessalonians to live with that end times in mind and this be what they're supposed to do today. This be what they're supposed to live out in light of the end. And in these four verses, we see three sections of how to cultivate a God-loving, Christ-centered environment. The first one we see in verses 12 and 13 are how we are meant to love and respect those that are in leadership in our church. In verse 14, we see how we are meant to treat one another. And then third, the very last section, we see how we should treat everyone. See, because how we love, respect, care for, and serve, it cultivates an environment. And so as we dig into these verses I pray that we can be encouraged by what Paul is calling the church to do. So let's take a deeper look at verses 12 and 13. Once again, they say, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul here is calling the Thessalonians to love and respect their church leadership. It's important, though, to understand what form of leadership are they actually talking about. Well, if we read this verse, it's those who labor among us, who volunteer, who serve. It's those who are working on the Lord's behalf, who are assigned by God. And it's those who admonish us. By the way, admonish is a fancy word for correct, but it's an even fancier word because it doesn't just mean correct. What it also means is to correct without provoking or embittering the recipient. It's coming alongside someone in love and grace and saying, hey, you messed up on this, but you're human. Let's move forward together. And in these two verses, we see that Paul is telling the church that those who do these three tasks are meant to be respected and loved by the congregation. But before you doze off or leave, um, let me keep explaining so you can understand it a little bit more. This isn't just about me and Mark, okay? Let me just put that out there. See, the Thessalonian church was young. The leaders were just beginning in their journey with Jesus. And Paul calls them to love and serve, but he also calls the congregation to love and respect them, not because of their ranking, not because of their status. See, back then in that culture, in the Greek and Roman culture, your rank, your status demanded respect from other people. If you had rank and status, you could walk anywhere and people would respect you and love you. If you didn't have anything, nobody cared about you. But Paul is saying, do not Love and respect your leadership based on their ranking. Instead, love your church because, church leadership because of how they labor and admonish on your behalf. Because if it was only based on power and rank, that wouldn't create an atmosphere of love and peace. We've seen that throughout history. 
those who lead with an iron fist and demand respect, it never goes well. The leaders of the Thessalonian church received love and respect because of how they worked, served, and loved their community. See, love creates space for peace. Love in a community creates harmony. And a community that cultivates an environment and love of love and respect ultimately creates space for peace. Because peace is not easy. It's something you have to work for. And I believe Paul puts this here because Jesus calls us to be peacemakers himself. In the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. But peace does not come without struggle. Whether it's with another leader or with just one another, we are called to be peacemakers. We're called to work out our quarrels. We're called to not run from our troubles, but instead to think of the end in mind. What type of culture am I trying to create? Am I trying to create a culture of love, peace, and respect? Because if I am, I have to be willing to fight for it. I have to be willing to address conflict, resolve conflict, seek reconciliation and restoration. And in these two verses, we hear about how we are meant to treat one another in a community. We should honor, respect, and love our church leaders. And we should pursue peace with everything within us. And let me address that disclaimer again. I am not saying that you all need to respect my authority. That is not what I am saying at all. I'm also not saying that right after the sermon, you come up to me and Mark and you just be like, oh my gosh, we love you so much. No, 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 no. You can do that if you actually love us, but don't do it because of just what we're here for and what we're called to in our quote unquote title as pastor. That's not what this verse is getting at. What this verse is getting at is that those who help, disciple, encourage, admonish, lead, care for, and correct in the way of Jesus, those are the people that we need to love and respect. It's people like our kids' workers that come throughout the week to set up classrooms so our kids can experience Jesus. It's like Lisa, who takes all the different age ranges of kids and goes, okay, how do one-year-olds, three-year-olds understand Jesus? How do I write a curriculum that those kids can understand Jesus? It's like Carly, who works with our youth so that they can experience Jesus in a safe and respectable and loving environment. And it's all the volunteers that come alongside them so our kids can know who Jesus is. But it's not just those who serve in the classrooms. It's those who are here throughout the week. It's our HR department who works tirelessly so we can keep the doors open. It's all of our admins who come in and try to help the pastors out and help one another out. It's Jacob at the front desk helping anybody that walks in the door. It's all of us that are working for the Lord. But it's not just the staff. It's those that come early on a Sunday to make sure we have a cafe with coffee and bagels. It's those that sit at the front doors as we walk in and greet us. These are the people that are working and laboring on God's behalf. And these are the people that we should stop and thank every now and then. How often when we go and pick up our kids are we saying thank you to the people working behind the counter? How often when we go and grab a bagel are we asking the person behind the counter how they are doing? 
Because when we love and respect people, that's what we do. And this is not about how we treat assigned leaders. It's about how we treat everyone. As we'll see in the very next verse, we enter into this rhythm of how we should treat one another. Verse 14 says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And these four responsibilities that Paul is giving the church is in light of creating a culture of love, peace, and respect. <clears throat> the church is called to admonish, to encourage, to help, and be patient with all. So what does it mean to admonish the idol? The church is called to not allow or act passively in the face of lazy or disorderly members. Instead, the church should respond with grace, with truth, with mercy, to correct the sins, laziness, and idleness that we all can fall in. Let's be honest, we all need somebody every now and then to come and admonish us and push us a little bit so that we don't become idle, so we don't continue sinning, so we don't become lazy. We all need correction at time, but we also all need encouragement. And Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. In some translations, it says, encourage the timid. In other words, encourage those that are discouraged. Encourage those that because of life circumstances want to give up. Come alongside them, love them. We are to encourage the faint-hearted, but we're also called to help the weak. The church is meant to come alongside those that are struggling. The church should know about what's going on in one another's lives, so we treat one another as a family and we care for one another's needs. And all three of those, goodness gracious, doesn't need the last one because you can't do those three without patience. And Paul calls us to be patient with all. And it's kind of straightforward, doesn't really need an explanation. But what I want to say about patience is we can't look at this verse without thinking of Jesus. And the grace, mercy, forgiveness, and cleansing nature of Jesus. We are called to be patient like Jesus. And Jesus is so patient with every single person that he meets in the Gospels. And I wonder if we had that similar patience, if we wouldn't get impatient with people, but we would see them as somebody who's one prayer and heart change away from accepting Jesus into their lives. And see, with these four responsibilities, they're all here for a reason. We are called to admonish, we are called to encourage, we are called to help, and we are called to be patient. And Paul is not just addressing the Thessalonica church, he's addressing all churches throughout history. We are called to admonish the idol because of the fact that there are some who when they decide to follow Jesus, they become lazy. They're like, cool, I accepted Jesus, I know what's going to happen at end times, but now I'm just going to live my life the way I want. But what they don't understand is that Jesus, Paul, and the New Testament, write, New Testament writers are clearly saying, hey, yes, wait for the end, but also how you're waiting for the end and you following Jesus should determine your every actions of every single day. 
we, no matter where we are at, no matter what job we have, no matter what community we live in, we have a chance to be Jesus to those around us. That's what it means to not be lazy. It means that we seek to be Jesus where we are and with everyone around us. And of course, the church is called to encourage the faint-hearted. There are some that doubt. There are some that question their faith. And Paul encourages the church to not give up on those that have questions and are troubled. Instead, come alongside them. Say, guess what? I may not have the answers, but I would love to disciple you in this. I'd love to lead you in this. Come alongside and encourage one another. And Paul also says, encourage the church to help the weak because there are and there were a lot of poor, suffering, widows, and hard seasons in the life of the congregation. But this goes so much deeper than just material needs. There are weak among us in the faith. There are weak among us that fall into temptation all the time. The church should be a place where people that are weak in their faith and people that have struggles with their faith can come and find love. They can find a family that is eager to hold them and say, guess what, you don't have all, it all together? That's okay, we're human too. But how often as churches do we not do this? How often do we hear about someone's sin and we say, whoa, can't help you. In fact, don't even enter the doors. Instead of going, oh man, you're a sinner? Guess what? Me too. And then walk alongside the person. Help them see who Jesus is. And Paul wants the church to understand that as we admonish, as we encourage, and as we help, we have to do it with a heart posture of patience. See, there are people that society walks all over, but the church is meant to love them. And to love those that society deems as unlovable takes a tremendous amount of patience. But it's so much more than that, too. If any of you have kids in here, you might get this. I have two older sisters, and I'm the youngest, so I was the peacemaker in the family. And I remember the previous verse was about peace. If you try to establish peace between two people that are conflicting, Goodness gracious, does it take so much patience. Any parent in here knows this. Anybody that has ever tried to be a peacemaker knows this. <laughs> it takes so much patience. But those that are peacemakers and those that adopt these four principles seek the end first. They seek to build places that are peaceful, that are loving, that are, are patient-filled. And we need to implement these four, not just in our church, but as a global church, as Christians. We have to adopt these in our lives. And I wonder for Creekside Church and other churches, how many of our churches, cultures, and communities would change if we simply adopted these four things? Seriously, if we were all patient, goodness gracious, how could we change the world with that? But think about it. What if a church corrected with grace and love and mercy? What if a church, when they came alongside you or someone else that you know was in sin, developed a plan for reconciliation and restoration? What if a church encouraged those struggling in their faith and their walk with Jesus? What if the church helped the needy, poor, widowed, and those who struggle with temptation? What if we as a true church were truly patient with all people? 
if we could do this, we would establish an environment that looks a little bit like heaven. What if somebody that walked through our doors experienced heaven for the first time because of how we acted with one another? And I believe, honestly, and I'm not saying this just because I'm a pastor here, I believe we are trying to do this here. And in no way do we have this figured out if you're new. I've only been here 11 months, so maybe I'm seeing things. <laughs> but in the 11 months that I've been here, I've seen you all take on these responsibilities. I've seen you help encourage and be patient with the homeless as we host them here for a meal, as we host them here to sleep. I've seen counseling take place that breakthroughs are happening. People are being admonished in such a loving way that they don't feel attacked. I've seen grief care take place here where some of us are struggling so deeply with the loss and yet to have another person come alongside you and walk you through it has been so encouraging. I've seen gospel communities not just care for the people in their community, but also care for one another. I've seen discipleship take place in nurture and in our men's ministry. I've seen our discipleship groups grow in the ways of Jesus. I've seen us go on mission trips to Mexico. I've seen a ministry that started here grow into a church service for the homeless. And there are so many other things that I honestly am not remembering right now and didn't write down. But our church also has met the needs of our church financially. When we were in trouble, you all rallied to come alongside the church so we could keep going forward. You rallied when there were people in the congregation that needed help with finances. I've seen us act as a family that shares struggles but also shares successes. And before you even knew me, you showed up to help me and my pregnant wife move our U-Haul into our apartment. You guys embody what it means to be a family. You embody what it means to admonish, encourage, and help, and be patient. But we don't have it figured out at all, and I know that. But I do believe we as a Creekside church are on our way to the final verse. I believe that we are going to get here. Verse 15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The Thessalon Thessalonians here are being encouraged to do good in every situation. So let me explain some of the situations they had. They were persecuted. They experienced hardship. They had anxiety. They had stress. Maybe they had traffic, but that might apply to us. They had kids that were around them 24-7 because I don't believe there was daycare back then. Kids went with their parents to work. The stress was real back then. There was so much hurry. But Paul says, in all of that, seek to do good. And I love that Paul says seek because that means it's a process. It means we have to choose it. We have to continually come back to it over and over again and go, am I doing this? Am I really seeking the greatest good for those around me? And the reason Paul says this is that Paul and us know the real nature of humans. When somebody slaps us, oh, we're ready. We want to hit them back, right? Or when somebody just makes you angry, maybe driving here, for example, 
you want to respond in a way that turns evil for evil. I'm guilty of that, for sure. Just ask my wife when we drive. Or don't. Please. But our actions cultivate an environment. If we respond to evil with evil, we are creating a loveless, peaceless, impatient, warlike atmosphere. But if we respond to our enemies with love, not only are we doing something that Jesus calls us to, but we are also responding to evil with good. In Luke 6, Jesus says this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I love that this verse says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Because as image bearers, we are meant to do what God does. But I also wonder as image bearers on this side of the cross, if we truly acted like Jesus and everywhere we were, if ungrateful and evil people would begin to see that they have value, that they can see that goodness gracious, there is a God that can love me because you love me. Because Christian love let me say this differently. Christ's love is not just restricted to the church. It's for all. It's for every single person you meet. It is displayed through our actions. Are our actions cultivating that we follow Jesus? Are our actions showing an environment of love, peace, and grace? Because it's not enough to just avoid trouble. As peacemakers, we have to pursue the trouble. We have to go after it, and we have to do what is good for everyone. And scripture is clear in this area. It gives us plenty of advice. It says, turn the other cheek. Care for the widows and the poor. Admonish. Be slow to respond to an angry person. Be quick to listen. Be quick to sacrifice for one another. Learn to lay down your lives for one another. Peacemakers don't run from conflict. They seek to do the next best thing in conflict because of their love for the people around them. And if Jesus' love is our driving force, what type of culture are we trying to create? I want to take us back to this image right here. This beautiful room that was filled with individual things to create a culture and an environment. If we had an empty room, how would we want to fill it? What environment would we seek to create? What environment would we want our church to be known for? What atmosphere would we want people to feel the second they stepped in our doors? What actions or responsibilities do you need to take and adapt to your lives so that you are an atmosphere that shows Jesus in your community, in your homes, in your apartments, at work? What do you need to do to cultivate an environment that shows you are devoted to Jesus? 
And these four verses that we looked at today show us how to cultivate this form of environment. See, Jesus died and rose from the dead so that we can experience love, forgiveness, and freedom from our sin and shame. But so much more than that, he's going to return to take us to a place where there is no more pain, there is no struggle, and we get to live in paradise with him forever. And if we have this in mind, what are we doing today to cultivate an environment that looks a little bit like paradise? See, I pray that we are respecting, honoring, and loving those that work for the Lord around us. I hope that we are becoming peacemakers. I hope that we are admonishing, encouraging, helping, and being patient with those around us. And I pray that in every situation we seek to do good. And although these sound simple, it is very complex trying to create a little piece of heaven here on earth. But much like the minimalist who approaches an empty room, we must approach the atmosphere and culture we want to make here on earth with a heaven perspective, with the end in mind. And so let's pray for the courage to continue in the work the Lord has given us. God, thank you for the opportunity to preach this sermon. Lord, I pray that you spoke through this sermon to us here today. I pray as we head into a time of worship, that we would meditate on one or two things that stood out to us in this sermon. That we would remember that we are your image bearers to the world around us. That in our everyday actions, we show who we believe Jesus is. And we show the hope that is to come in the end. Lord, I pray that our church would be a place that admonishes with love that encourages the faint-hearted, that helps the weak, and that is patient with all. I pray that we would have the courage to be peacemakers. And Lord, I pray for discernment to know how to do good in all situations. Amen.